This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. When we're lost in the wanting mind, in the mind of desire, it solidifies and strengthens the sense of self, the sense of I, and it obscures the natural clarity, the recognition of the natural clarity and lucidity and emptiness of our own minds. So it's a great obscuring force when we're not paying attention. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. nature of the mind, the essential nature, is empty, it's clear, it's unobstructed, it's lucid, it simply knows whatever is arising, whatever is appearing. But somehow we don't often recognize the simplicity of the empty, open, selfless nature of awareness. So often we get caught up or distracted or seduced by various thought patterns or emotional tendencies. Some of these patterns or tendencies are so long and deeply established, they've often become invisible to us. We so much take them to be who we are. There may be patterns of desire or aversion, of fear, of doubt. We become so habituated to their arising, we take them to be who we are and we don't really see their true nature. And it obscures our recognition of the empty clarity, the empty lucidity of mind. The Buddha talked of how difficult our task is. He gave one very striking image. He said, imagine yourselves on a battlefield surrounded by a thousand warriors. 
America, you alone, surrounded by a thousand warriors, and somehow, by some miracle, you manage to conquer them, overcome them, defeat them. And then he said, imagine doing this a thousand different times. And he said, that's easier <laughs> than freeing our minds, liberating our minds completely from these deeply rooted habit patterns and tendencies. So if you find as you're sitting here that you get lost from time to time, <laughs> it's really not surprising. This is a huge undertaking. You know, and so I think for me, even though on the surface it may seem somewhat discouraging, for me it's actually inspiring that this is not a trivial task. It's not a question of, okay, we do a weekend enlightenment intensive and then it's all done, or even a three-month retreat or... I mean, this is the work of a lifetime and perhaps many lifetimes. And so we can settle back and really relax into the moment. And step by step, we let the Dharma unfold. We walk this path, this practice of freedom. Buddha spoke very directly to the work that needs to be done. He was as... Usual, very explicit, very straightforward. He said in one of the suttas that one should make an end of suffering without abandoning the underlying tendencies towards of desire for the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, indifference to the neutral. That is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering by abandoning these tendencies, that is possible. So the work is very clear. If we want to fulfill the possibility that the Buddha laid out for us of really coming to the end of suffering, coming to freedom, this is the work that needs to be done. We need somehow through insight, through wisdom, through clarity, through understanding. We need both to see these tendencies of mind and to see how to let go, how to abandon them. So tonight I'd like to explore and investigate and examine a little bit one of these <coughs> deeply habituated patterns. It's the one that... I'm very familiar with, and that is the underlying tendency of desire, the wanting mind, the mind of craving. And one of the nice things about teen teaching is you get all the types, you know, and so you get the aversives, and you get the deluded, and you get the greeds. <laughs> so between us all, and there's quite a full presentation. <laughs> Desire. One of the reasons it's difficult to get a handle on it in a way is because 
the word in English has many different meanings. And so sometimes we confuse the meanings in English with the desire that the Buddha was talking about. In English, the word desire could be the desire of greed, you know, of grasping. It could be the desires of a simple motivation. I have a desire to do something. I'm motivated to do something. Which might be associated with greed. It might be associated with wisdom. That's another meaning of the word. Sometimes we use the word desire just to represent the satisfaction of our basic human needs. You know, food, of shelter, that doesn't necessarily imply a clinging or grasping. So in talking tonight, you need to think particularly, when we use the word desire, it's really going to be the translation of the Pali Tanha, which is translated often as desire or craving or thirst. You know, and I think thirst is a very good translation for it because it gives a sense of the strength and the power of that force in the mind. When we don't see this tanha arising, when we don't see the working of desire, what happens is that we simply act out the patterns of this particular conditioning. And as we act it out, it brings in its wake all the inevitable suffering, the suffering of attachment, of craving. The Buddha spoke of three kinds of craving, three kinds of desire. And the first one is the one that's the most obvious and perhaps the one we can see most clearly. And that is desire for sense pleasures. Where can we see this? We see it in our own strongest attachments. What are we most attached to? You know, we see it in our attachment to the body and the pleasures we want through the various senses, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and sensations in the body. We see the desire through our attachment to other people. It's also a kind of sense pleasure. Attachment to possessions or to things. Now there's a wide range <coughs> There's a wide spectrum of intensity of desire. Sometimes it becomes an overwhelming obsession where the mind is just filled with some obsession for a person, a thing, a situation, and completely dominates our lives. What's somewhat interesting and ironic that somehow our culture, in many ways, ennobles this quality. I remember seeing sort of an advertisement for one perfume called Obsession. So, and it's just so interesting. It is this tremendously seductive aroma, a seductive scent, named Obsession. People pay $50 or (laughs) whatever. You know, that somehow this is something we want to cultivate and have. And 
I don't think they've really looked at the nature of obsession in the mind. <laughs> but there's other desires. It may not be, you know, we may not be totally consumed, but maybe we notice in ourselves some pattern of addictive cravings. You know, something that we just find ourselves needing to do again and again and again. And we all have our own particular little addictions or big addictions. It could be this attachment or craving for sense pleasure could be just this indulgence of recurring fantasies. You know, as you sit here, and you have all this time and space and nobody's bothering you. <laughs> it's easy just to get caught up in, you know, pleasant fantasies and it makes the hour go quickly. And But that's another kind of sense craving, sense delight. It could be just a momentary, you know, just a moment's wanting. So anywhere in this range, they're all manifestations of this. On retreat, the field of possibility narrows considerably. You don't have that many opportunities. And yet it's quite amazing because even in this rather restricted field of gratification, the mind manages to come up with all sorts of desires and wantings. If you have a favorite walking spot and you know that other people like it too, how mindfully do you leave the meditation hall? You ever find yourself rushing to get your spot? Something I've noticed is just to notice the difference between when I'm doing walking meditation back and forth and when I'm walking to lunch. And it can be very subtle, but, you know, kind of that leaning forward into it. Has anybody talked about the famous VRs, the Pasana romances? You know, and just the fantasies that start arising in the mind as you're sitting here, where you just create some romantic drama you know, about somebody who's on retreat. And all of a sudden, this is the person of your life. You know, and you can sit for a long time lost in the fantasies or outside as you're walking about or in the kind of sneaking of glances, you know, kind of be near them. What is this? Where is this coming from? You may not even know this person. And yet, the force of wanting in the mind, the force of desire, the force of craving, the desire of wanting diversions. In, out, in, out, in, out. How many breaths can you watch without wanting some kind of entertainment? And so we look for entertainment either in our sittings or moving about. It's interesting to notice how many times a day, for example, you might glance at the bulletin board. It's the same announcements. You know, that are there, can be there all three months probably. <laughs> Laundry day. <laughs> I mean, it can get really bad. It can get really bad. I remember on retreats, my mind was so hungry for a diversion. I mean, it was just desperate. I started reading the ingredients of a detergent box. 
fascinating. <laughs> the most, one of the most striking examples to me of the power of the wanting mind I was sitting in India. Everything was going really well. A long, deep, silent sittings where you're kind of sitting where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. Then the tea bell would ring. And I'd think of the bananas they were going to serve with tea. And it's just amazing for me to watch my mind. Here I'm sitting, about to get enlightened. (laughs) Banana. (laughs) And the bananas they served in India were about that big. (laughs) They were really small bananas. It was just amazing to watch the power of that wanting lift me out of this in a really wonderful space so I could get my tea and bananas. Very powerful force of wanting. We need to understand it. We need to really look in and investigate and examine. When we're lost in the wanting mind, in the mind of desire, It solidifies and strengthens the sense of self, the sense of I. And it obscures the natural clarity, the recognition of the natural clarity and lucidity and emptiness of our own minds. So it's a great obscuring force when we're not paying attention. Desire or craving also comes into the meditation practice, our understanding of how we're doing the meditation. It's almost like it comes masquerading as wisdom, but it's really desire. Very common tendency is the power of expectation. You know, when you're sitting, and just with the breath, with feelings in the body, thoughts, whatever, So much of the suffering that comes in the mind is because there's the longing of expectation, not being open and relaxed and settled back into the experience just as it is. But there's a wanting. There's a wanting something else to be happening. And somehow we think, yeah, we should be wanting, but that this is not good enough. Yet it's the very wanting which is actually preventing the recognition of the basic empty nature. Expectation unnoticed is always a setup for disappointment and discouragement. So it's a source of tremendous suffering, that kind of wanting. We need to see it. It's not only expectation of wanting some new experience. We can also get lost in the wanting of a comparing mind. 
you know, comparing ourselves with others, comparing ourselves with an idea of how we should be. I don't know whether you've, any of you have gotten into competitive sitting, you know, but it's not unknown in these halls, in this hall. And one time, the first year I sat with Upandita, where there was so much, I mean, he's such a demanding teacher, and unless it's held in the correct way, I mean, it can bring up certain qualities of self-judgment and comparing. And I got caught a lot in that first year with him. And I kept looking at everybody else and seeing how mindful they looked and thinking, I wasn't being mindful enough and I was driving myself crazy with this kind of comparing and wanting and disappointment. And it was in the springtime and one time I was walking just outside and some flowers were beginning to come up, bulbs, you know, were beginning to come up outside. And I was just looking at these flowers and I saw how some of them had come up and were fully bloomed. And others were just coming out of the ground but had not been opened. And others had not even come out of the ground yet, or just the very tip of them. And I just looked at those, and it's just a very simple you know, experience in nature. But somehow it spoke to me, and it made me realize that our Dharma practice is unfolding for each one of us in the same way that those flowers grow. You know, And some kind of grow up quickly and bloom quickly, and some coming up more slowly, and some. It doesn't matter, you know, because each one of them in their own time was going to blossom. And it was such a relief to just, okay, let me be my own flower. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to grow like anyone else grows. It's a tremendous relaxation, you know, when we can settle back with a quality of trust, with a quality of faith, of surrender. Surrender to the Dharma. Let it happen in its own time. We do our part. We sit, we walk, we sit, we walk. And it all happens. There's this desire of expectation that creates suffering. There's the desire of comparing, of wanting to be like somebody else that creates suffering. There's the desire of holding on or trying to hold on to a pleasant mind state. You know, as we proceed in the practice, there are meta- great meditative pleasures, much deeper and more fulfilling than external sense pleasures. You know, places of calm and peace and stillness and clarity, which are extremely delightful. And then we can get trapped by that. We think, ah, this is it. This is what I've been practicing for. And we hold on. And when they pass, as they inevitably do, because everything passes, so then we start struggling again. What did I do wrong? Why can't I get it back? Where is it? And sometimes that struggle can go on for a day or week or month. At one point in my practice, I struggled for two years to get a state back. There was a state of great light and luminosity, and it was fantastic. And then it went away. And for two years, I I was obsessed. I was wearing obsession perfume. (laughs) 
I was obsessed with the scent of that state. And it was tremendously painful because I was just struggling with everything that was going on. Instead of simply settling back, let me be with what's here. It's amazing. I mean, this is very simple. Really simple. It's not rocket science. Be with what's here rather than with what's not here. And yet the force of wanting, the force of desire, of longing, of expectation, of craving is so amazingly strong. And it keeps taking us out of the moment, out of what's here, trying to get something else, and it creates suffering for us. It hinders the process of understanding, of insight, of concentration. Not only does unnoticed desire create a lot of trouble for us, it also does not fulfill its promises of happiness. I mean, desire seduces us again and again because there's the implicit message, fulfill me and you'll be happy. If I get this, or if I do this, or if I have this experience, then I'll be happy. The problem, of course, and it should hopefully be obvious by now, is that even when we do get the object of our desire, of our wanting, it doesn't bring lasting happiness precisely because it's not lasting. The pleasant feelings that come with any of these experiences, they come, they go, so then the mind wants another, and another, and another, and another. It's like trying to quench our thirst by drinking salt water. It's not a very good strategy. (laughs) The more we drink, the thirstier we get. And yet our relationship to desire is very much the same. How many pleasant feelings have we had in our lives? Innumerable. We can begin to count how many pleasant feelings we've had you know, of sight or sound or sensation or thought or feeling or taste, whatever. So we know deeply, if we pay attention or investigate or examine, we know that they're not going to fulfill us. And yet desire creeps up again and again, and we forget. And Indraji has this wonderful teaching. As we'd be sitting around, he'd be asking us, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of tasting, of smelling, of touching? I mean, how many times do we have to have these sense experiences before we finally realize that they are not going to bring us completion or fulfillment? We need to look. We need to pay attention. 
not only to the objects that are arising, but to the very nature of the desire. What is this force of wanting that captivates us again and again and again and keeps us imprisoned? Because how much of our lives and how much of our energies do we invest in this process of gratification? To no avail. Dharma practice really opens us to the possibility of a much greater happiness. A happiness that's not dependent on this flow of changing phenomena. Not dependent on gratification in the moment. Well, this is the first desire, first kind of desire that the Buddha talked of. Desire or craving for sense pleasures. It's an arena we're very familiar with. The second kind of desire that the Buddha talked of, he called <coughs> the craving, <coughs> the craving or the desire for existence. That is that deep, basic urge to be, to exist. But this is a very strong force in us. In Buddhism, this desire for existence is talked about even more specifically in the, in the classical teachings when they talk about it as being the desire for continued rebirth. We, we just want to keep on going and going and going and going. And then it's refined even further that this desire for existence or rebirth often has to do for rebirth in pleasant realms. I mean, I don't think anybody has desire for rebirth in realms of suffering. And so we want to be heading. We want more and more existence in pleasure realms. And the Buddha described some of these heaven realms in fantastic ways. Manindra used to enjoy talking about them a lot, and I loved listening to them because it sounded so delightful. You know, we're these realms, the Deva realms. You know, where beings are there with bodies of light, and you know, intimacy is just emerging, merging of light. You know. And Describes these pleasure groves, heavenly pleasure groves, and heavenly music. And sounded great. <laughs> and then he also talked about these these uh, heavenly meditation halls, where those who could tear themselves away from the pleasure groves <laughs> would go and sit. Of course, sitting with a luminous body is something quite else. And I remember one time our, you know, our teacher Deepama, who, you know, over the years we've talked about a lot, this, this wonderful woman from Calcutta who's, you know, extraordinary yogi. And just quite amazing. Had all very deeply enlightened, you know, high stages of enlightenment and wisdom, but also unbelievable powers of concentration. And she'd mastered, she'd mastered all the jhanas and the samadhis and all the, the cities, which mean the psychic powers, which was, 
she was an extraordinary woman. I remember one time she was here in the fall teaching with us and it was a really beautiful fall day. You know, and all the leaves, you know, were in the bright colors. We were, we were down by the pond, Gaston Pond. We we're just looking at the leaves and the water and the reflection in the water. And it was really beautiful. And I said to her, half jokingly, but half seriously, you know, is this as beautiful as the Deva realms? And she just took a little, nah. <laughs> yeah, and she supposedly expressed, you know, that she had very direct experience of these other realms. Uh, she said it really can't compare. <laughs> it's also said that Maitreya, the next Buddha, the, the next Buddha to be, is residing in one of these realms, you know, and just teaching and waiting for his time. Now, of course, Westerners generally are quite skeptical of all this because it's not in most of our direct experience. Uh, the Buddha often would talk about it as a way of kind of just gladdening the heart and the mind and making it, brightening things up a bit. Uh, Munindra, when Westerners would be with Munindra and he would be going on and on about all these realms, he would always say, because you could see the skeptical look in people's eyes, he'd say, you don't really have to believe this. You know, it's not necessary to believe this for enlightenment or wisdom. You don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> I take refuge a lot in one of my favorite Vipassana mantras with regard to questions like this. Who knows? You know, I think it's good and it's wise to stay open to possibilities. That's all. We neither have to have a belief nor a disbelief, but we just stay open. But even in all this talk of the Deva worlds, this desire for existence or higher existence, still, even these realms are still very much in the cycle of life and death and rebirth and samsara. It's not any lasting fulfillment as long lived and as wonderful as those places may be beings in them it's still subject to the same law of change the same law of birth and death as we experience right here so the desire for existence even of those pleasant realms the deva realms it's not very fruitful not very not very satisfying there is a more immediate meaning of desire for existence, which resonated a lot in my own meditation practice because I could see my mind falling into this trap and it was on a much more subtle level than the simple fantasy about what my next life might be. And that is the desire or clinging to the unfolding process itself. What I mean by that, perhaps you've noticed as you sit and you're meditating, you're just watching what happens and you get a sense of the flow or the current of experience. That quality of mind, which is leaning into the experience as if somehow 
the next moment will bring it to fulfillment. And so there's that kind of desire or craving, what the Buddha called the process of becoming, of leaning into the next. We're, we're with the in-breath in order to feel the out-breath. Or we're with a sensation wanting to see what else it turns into or to leave or whatever our particular longing is. Instead of resting back in this open mirror-like wisdom of the mind, we can find our minds toppling forward into the process, the unfolding process. And so I would encourage you to look carefully and to watch for that subtlety of craving, that subtlety of desire. A phrase that helped me a lot to disengage from that leaning forward into things I would say in my mind, it's already here. And it really helped me disengage from that kind of subtle wanting. And it was even, it was even more subtle than an expectation. It wasn't as, it wasn't as fully formed as an expectation. It was simply an energetic toppling into the next moment and the next and the next. At one point when I went for an interview with Upandita and I was doing that a lot, I was just, and my mind was so, I'd been practicing for quite a while in Burma at that time. My mind was very focused and concentrated. I was seeing so many details and really enjoying that level of investigation. And he just told me that I'm too attached to subtlety. And I hadn't even realized that my mind was so grasping of the subtle level. Always our practice is to settle back and let go. It's the mind of no clinging. It's already here, so there's nothing we have to get. We need to hear this a lot and coach ourselves a lot in the practice about this. It's not about getting anything. It's about letting go. The possibility or the experience of letting go is already here. (laughs) Somehow, our minds are so funny. We think we need to get something special to let go of. We don't. There's another teaching of the Buddha in one of the suttas that highlights this. And for me, it's a very powerful teaching. When I, when I read this, or when I read it, somehow it just opens the window on a possibility of the heart releasing right now in the moment. He said, don't revive the past nor hope to be in the future. 
instead with insight see each arising state not craving after the past experience not setting one's heart on future ones not bound up with desire and craving Can you see the freedom that's there in that moment, in any moment? When we're not going, we're not reviving the past and we're not setting one's heart on some future experience, which we do a lot. We just let go of both of those and drop into the open, empty space of awareness simply of what's arising in the moment. The mind free of this craving for existence, craving for existence in the past, craving for existence in the future, it disengages the gears of attachment, like we depress the clutch in the mind, the gears of attachment disengaged and then there is a free flow of experience moment after moment and there's no one clinging at anything it's a moment of no craving so there's the craving and the wanting for different kinds of sense pleasures there's the craving for existence in its various forms, whether it's the existence of rebirth in the heaven realms or just the existence of this unfolding process. The third craving, which is even more subtle, but permeates our minds in ways that we don't often see, is the craving for non-existence. But somehow, in the midst of suffering, there's often a desire for non-existence as a way out of the suffering. And in, in the Buddhist philosophy, this is called, I mean, it's, it's the fallacy of the annihilationist view. The Buddha talked of we can fall on one of two sides. We can fall into attachment to the eternalist view of wanting to exist forever. That's desire for existence or desire for annihilation. That is the getting out. But both of them are predicated on a great delusion. And it's precisely that delusion which keeps us in suffering. And the delusion is that there is someone there in the first place to not exist or that there's someone there in the first place to keep existing. We are caught in a notion, self, of I, of ego, and from that notion, both of these kinds of cravings are born and all the suffering that goes with them. The next talk in a few days, I'm going to talk about how we create this notion of self, this notion of I. 
because that is the root of the of the craving. The great discovery in our practice, and this is an amazing, it's, a, it's an amazingly radical discovery, is that there is no one there to take birth or not take birth. That it's simply a process of empty phenomena rolling on. Guy talked the other night of the five aggregates. They don't belong to anyone. It's just an unfolding process. We'll talk more about that in a few days. There was one writer named Wei Wu Wei. He was an Englishman. I forget his English name. But he had some kind of enlightenment experience. And he wrote some wonderful books with very... Pithy aphorisms expressing his wisdom. He said, all of this concern about self, a craving for existence, craving for non-existence, all the suffering that comes from self, it's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. It's just a wonderful image. Can you just picture the dog barking up this tree that isn't there? Well, we're barking up this tree of self, and it's not there. Why don't we just go lie down peacefully? So how can we use this time, this very precious time of a retreat, a time of intensive practice, of being undistracted, because it's so rare, how can we actually use it to investigate the power and the force of this desire and craving in the mind, because it's so deeply rooted? This is the driving force of samsara. You know, in the, in the great scope of the Buddhist cosmology and all the realms of existence and rebirth and all of that, and whether you see it as a cos, as a cosmology or just a metaphor for this life, the force that's driving this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death is desire, is craving. This is the energy that's keeping it all going. It's keeping us imprisoned. So how can we begin to shed some light on it, to really understand it's working and not to be so caught by it? Obviously, the most important thing, what we need to practice is to be mindful as the desire, as the wanting arises. We need to see it and see it clearly without judgment, without condemning, to really see it with interest. And we can notice desire many, many times a day. This, there'll be no shortage of times to watch this. Notice what takes you away over and over again in different circumstances from 
being in the simplicity of the moment. Now you're sitting or you're walking or you're in transition someplace, you're moving about the building. It's very simple, just with a breath, with a movement. What takes you away from the simplicity of that moment? Really notice the habit patterns of desire that may be arising. Is it desire for some entertainment, for some diversion? Is it desire for some other experience? You're not satisfied with this one. Are we leaning into the flow of experience rather than resting in that empty mirror-like quality of awareness? You can also begin to recognize desire in many times of suffering. The suffering can be a feedback that there's a desire that's going unnoticed. And it's very interesting to trace back times of suffering. Trace back, 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 back. And to see that at the root of so many situations of suffering in our lives is a wanting. There's a wanting of something. And if it's unfulfilled, we suffer. But it's not only to trace it back. We can use a great discriminating power here. So we're suffering in one way or another. We actually begin to investigate it rather than simply drown in it or indulge it. We come back, back. We begin to see the wanting that's underneath the suffering. And then begin to see that the identification with that wanting is a choice. In the light of awareness, we do not need to be identified with it. The wanting itself is selfless. It's just another conditioned arising. If we can get back into the awareness of that wanting mind, Right there, we have the freedom. Do I identify with this or not? If we do, we suffer. If we don't identify with it, we don't suffer. We can really experience the relief right in that moment. Because wanting, desire, is itself selfless. It does not belong to us. What helps us in this choice not to identify with wanting? And we need help because the habit of identification with it is so strong. But what helps us not to identify with this condition habits of wanting is beginning to appreciate the great joy and power of renunciation. be interesting to do a, a person on the street <coughs> <a> survey <coughs> excuse me 
and ask people what their first association with renunciation is. Just what they think of when they think of renunciation. It probably wouldn't be a great association. You know, it'd probably be something that felt onerous or burdensome and maybe something that in the long run is good for us, but not a very happy situation in the moment. And you're probably familiar with St. Augustine's great prayer. Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And that's, I think, kind of represents, represents our take on renunciation. It's a fine thing, but not yet. Well, I think there's a deeper understanding that actually can change our relationship to it, our view of it. Because another meaning or another understanding of renunciation is the mind free of addiction. And we see the addicted mind as being the suffering and the mind of renunciation as being the mind released from that suffering. I mean, now you don't have the opportunity, but you you must remember times of just watching TV with all the commercials. Just imagine what your mind would be like if it wanted everything that was advertised. You know, if every time something came up on a commercial, you could feel your mind, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. It would be a hell of a You know, there would be so much tightness and grasping from that desire. It's like we would be living in a state of energetic contraction. Fortunately, with most of that stuff, we've learned to tune it out. And so the mind is relaxed in a state of ease and all this stuff comes and goes, but we're not hooked by it. Well, that's the same power of renunciation that we can bring to the commercials in our own minds. All the things that come up, the advertisements for whatever it is. Can we just press the mute button? (laughs) You know, where we're seeing it, but we're not caught by it. Do you have a sense of the ease of not wanting and the suffering of being caught by wanting? Very interesting exercise while you're here. And this is, this is a very good time to practice this. Pay attention. There will be times, of course, many, many times when there's a desire or wanting or craving in the mind, whatever it may be. You may be lost in some thought fantasy or whatever. Try to notice carefully the moments of transition when you go from being lost in that wanting or expectation to that moment when it changes, it disappears, which it will eventually. Desire, 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 desire. Desire is gone. Notice the difference in the quality of your mind and body. And I think you'll feel that it's like being let out of the grip of something. Even when the desire is associated with pleasure. You know, and that's what seduces us. Notice the freedom that you feel when we're free of that identification with that wanting. It is precisely like 
kind of the heart opens and relaxes, settles back again. And this is not something to believe or take as a kind of philosophical statement, really investigate. See in your own experience. One last little trick in working with desire. Mostly we are deluded into thinking that what we want is the ob- the particular object we're craving, whether it's food or a person or an object or a situation, whatever. Somehow we think that it's the particular object that we want. But really what we're wanting is the pleasurable feeling that we anticipate, the anticipated pleasurable feeling of that experience or that object. But we usually don't think in those terms. We usually think, oh, I want the new car, I want the this, I want the that. And so then we get caught up in a lot of attachment because the object is so solid. And we think, yes, this is something real that will make me happy. If we can remember that it's not the object, it's in the pleasant feeling that may come with it, that's really what we're desiring. But when we see that clearly, it's much easier to recognize that that feeling is very impermanent. Next time you want a cup of tea, this this is not to create a big drama around this cup of tea, just as a way of exploring your own mind, which I've done a lot with desire. Next time you want a cup of tea, just see the difference between the mind kind of obsessing on the tea, the difference between that and recognizing, yeah, it's just, it's just those moments of pleasantness that I'm anticipating with the tea. What I find is that when I can see clearly what the desire is after, it is much easier to see that it is a very ephemeral, ephemeral passing experience. That it's just a few moments of pleasant feeling, that's all. Then it's much easier to make a wise choice. Okay, do I... Have the cup of tea, or do I not? When we don't notice that, and there's there's just one one example, which I'm sure you've had many, many, many times. But when I was on retreat the last time, there was one particular incident of just walking. I was at home. I was walking downstairs after sitting, intending to go for walking meditation. And there was the barest subliminal thought, tea. And it was like a microsecond <laughs> into the kitchen, <laughs> spent the next five minutes, you know, doing the tea. It was so striking, the power of an unnoticed thought, an unnoticed desire. That's for a cup of tea. I mean, when we think of how desires are running our lives, it can give tremendous energy and interest to see, okay, can I understand this? 
Now, can I learn to see with some clarity and learn not to be so blindly identified with it? Now, we really begin to see the arising in the mind, to see that the identification with the wanting, the desire is a choice, to rest in that place of freedom. Mind is such an amazing thing. You know, in the Buddha's summation of all of his teaching, being that he teaches just one thing, he teaches about suffering and the end of suffering. That's really our investigation. To notice, to watch, to examine what are the ways that the mind gets caught? What are the ways through understanding that we can be free? That is our practice here. Let's sit for a few minutes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.